Hi everyone and Happy New Year! This is actually the first edition of South Asia Sphere, our monthly roundup of news events and developing stories across South Asia for 2022. I'm Raisa and I'm joined by my colleagues Shubanga, Marlon and Shweta. Hi guys! Hello! Hi! Hi! So, our big story in this edition is on South Asia's contentious relationship with the IMF. In Around South Asia in 5 Minutes, we are talking about the junta's prosecution of election officials in Myanmar, crackdowns on freedom of the press in Kashmir, India's 2022 budget, and a new bill from the Maldives that seeks to suppress protest against the MDP's foreign policy. Let's begin by talking about the IMF. So at the beginning of this month, the IMF approved a USD 1 billion loan to Pakistan, um, which is part of a 39-month loan program. Now, this was the sixth uh, tranche of the uh, $6 billion bailout package, which was to be paid in the course of three years. Um, Now, this bailout was agreed back in 2019, but it stalled and uh, was suspended for some time owing to, um, you know, delay uh, in Pakistani government complying with the requirements of IMF. Um, but it was renewed in, um, in November last year. Back in April 2020, the IMF released um, USD 1.4 billion to Pakistan, helping it handle an economic crisis amid uh, a surge in fatalities uh, from the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, now, while the IMF comes up with best practices, at times the, the overall impact of you know, large fiscal tightening uh, can push these economies into recession. So in this in this edition, we thought we would take a look at the role of the IMF in the region and bring out some of the inevitable debates that spring up when the IMF is involved. Marlon, how is, you know, the IMF and its role perceived in Pakistan? That's always an interesting question, Raisa, since IMF interventions are often uh, fiercely debated. And, and this was the same case in Pakistan. Now, for example, like I mentioned before, just last year, there were negotiations and renegotiations between Pakistani government and the IMF, even after the deal was agreed. Um, But in general, uh, some of the major criticisms directed at the IMF are that that the conditions uh, that are tied to the loans and at times the the structural changes that the states must effect, you know, like privatization of state-owned enterprises, deregulation, and, um, you know, bureaucratic processes. Um, another criticism is how these uh, bailouts may lead to moral hazard, you know, which refers to the possibility of, uh, of bailouts encouraging more borrowings. Um, now, this is especially true uh, when it comes to corporates that are deemed, you know, too big to fail. That's really interesting, Marlon. In Sri Lanka also, this is kind of relevant because there's, currently this debate going on about whether or not to seek a bailout from the IMF because, you know, if you've been following Sri Lanka, we are currently grappling with a serious economic crisis due to um, Sri Lanka's dwindling foreign currency reserves, um, which is largely due to, you know, debt repayments, uh, a lot of which are due in the next few years. Uh, Now the impacts of this are already being felt. In the past month, there have been unscheduled regular power cuts, price inflation, and there's also a shortage of uh, some medicines, milk powder and kerosene and other essentials. 
Um, but despite all these difficulties, there's still this very strong debate on whether or not to go to the IMF at all, with some arguing that the cure might be worse than the disease, given the very stringent conditions IMF will likely put in place, as in Pakistan. Now, unspoken here is that many of the people who are floating this narrative do not want to see reduced activity or even a crash in the stock market. So it's mostly members of the business community and traders who are kind of um, floating this kind of theory. But there are others who are saying that Sri Lanka has no other option given its shortage of foreign currency reserves. Now, some economists have also been advocating that Sri Lanka default on its sovereign debt and instead use its foreign currency to buy essentials like fuel and medicine. But there's also been really strong opposition to that idea as well. Yeah, Raisa, but I was curious what the government's or the central bank's stance on, on this whole issue and on the IMF is. Um, I mean, have they been making any official statements? Yeah, so the government has, as uh, is usual, it's uh, issuing quite contradictory statements. So while the central bank governor, Nivad Cabral, has said that Sri Lanka will not seek financial assistance from the IMF, uh, the finance minister, Basil Rajapaksa, has seemed quite open to the idea. And indeed, a team from IMF uh, was expected to visit the country to provide technical assistance, which Cabral is saying is just a routine program on macro-fiscal capacity building. So he's continuing to deny that Sri Lanka will seek an IMF loan. And in the meantime, of course, the central bank has artificially pegged the Sri Lankan rupee at around 200 rupees to one US dollar. And this doesn't really appear to be giving investors confidence. This is particularly so as some media has reported that more money is being printed in order to maintain this artificial rate, which is only leading to further devaluation of the rupee. Mm, that's very interesting because it's very similar to what happened in Pakistan. Now, uh, one of the preconditions of the IMF was a devaluation of the Pakistani currency, which according to them was um, artificially valued. Um, now, the IMF proposed a market-based exchange rate mechanism, um, which will see limited intervention by the, uh, uh, the central bank. So, uh, four days after the deal was agreed in 2019, uh, the Pakistani rupee weakened and dropped by almost 4%. But on the other hand, in the last quarter of 2021, when um, the government was trying to renegotiate the IMF deal, the currency weakened once again to record levels and uh, inflation rate became the fourth highest in the world, as reported by The Economist. Yeah, and currently even Sri Lanka's inflation has been you know, quite high, as I mentioned earlier as well. But yeah, coming back to the Sri Lankan case, um, so, so far, what Sri Lanka is doing is they're trying to use tools like currency swap to ease their debt. So, India has so far offered Sri Lanka about $1 billion through various lines of credit, including a currency swap amounting to around $400 million and a debt deferral of $515 million for two months. On the other hand, China has also entered into a currency swap with Sri Lanka of around $1.5 billion US dollars which is about 10 billion yuan as of March 2022. But critics are saying this is only a stopgap measure, especially with foreign debt obligations exceeding $7 billion just this year alone. Um, Sri Lanka has, of course, also turned to more creative ways of paying off its debt. 
So in December, it was actually reported that Iran had agreed to accept Ceylon TS payment for past oil imports to the value of $251 million. And meanwhile, Afghanistan is facing its worst economic crisis yet. So before the takeover in August, public services in the country relied heavily on international aid, but much of that funding has been frozen to comply with sanctions imposed on the Taliban, who don't have the volume of resources or the external recognition needed to resume basic functions of government. So most donors and the World Bank and IMF have halted planned transfers of funds. And commercial banks are for the most part closed, and with the currency depreciating, people are unable to afford basic goods. Um, Now, this Saturday, the 12th of February, protesters gathered in Kabul to condemn Joe Biden's orders, directing half of the $7 billion in Afghan assets um, held in the U.S. for families of America's 9-11 victims. The order allocates the remaining uh, $3.5 billion for humanitarian aid to a trust fund managed by the UN. Many have criticized the move, claiming that there were alternative ways to legally allow those funds to perform their function, i.e. to support Afghanistan's national currency. Given that the reserves rightfully belong to the people of Afghanistan, not any government or group, and by Trying to split the difference between domestic political pressures, the Biden administration's move could chart the worst-case outcome for the economy, making Afghanistan entirely reliant on small amounts of foreign aid. So the global aid economy has been caught up in domestic politics in Nepal as well. Um, Although in this particular case, it's not exactly with regards to the IMF um, or other multilateral agencies. Um, instead, it's the fate of a grant by the U.S.-supported Millennium Challenge Corporation, um, or MCC, which is at the center of Kathmandu politics these days. And uh, recently, it appears to have also been shaping, you know, everything from what happens to the ruling coalition to, you know, talking points about the next elections. And I think we've uh, briefly also mentioned the controversy over the MCC in a previous episode of the podcast, right? Yeah, right, Shweta. So... Just to recap uh, for people who have not followed up on this, um, so a compact for a grant worth USD 500 million, largely for building electricity transmission lines, was signed in 2017 between the Nepal government and the MCC, um, which is this US government run aid agency. Um, but the compact also needs to be ratified in the parliament, which is something that has been deferred and delayed so far. And this subject has suddenly become controversial over the last few years, um, you know, because largely because of the narrative about growing um, power competition between U.S. and China in Nepal, but, you know, broadly in South Asia and Asia. Um, and all of this is, of course, kind of helped by a lot of misinformation. And the recent development is that the U.S. State Department um, warned that a further delay uh, beyond, the mo- beyond the month of March could actually mean a cancellation of the grant. Um, and I think more crucially, a review of U.S.-Nepal relationship. But I'm mentioning this this news uh, because it has potential implication for Nepal's relationship with its creditors, um, which means you know several multilateral banks, including the IMF. And that's primarily because a you know U.S. and its close allies um, are important stakeholders in these institutions, 
but also because it raises questions about you know Nepal government's ability to honor past deals. Um, what's worth noting is that um, I mean while Nepal's external debts are you know nowhere as close as as high as uh, Sri Lanka's or Pakistan's, uh, but their overall debt levels have actually tripled in the last uh, five and a half six years. And now, uh, so you know, this has become a really important concern. And uh, now there is a renewed push by the largest party in the coalition, which is uh, the Nepali Congress, to ratify the compact. Um, even though its coalition partners, which includes the Maoist and uh, another breakaway faction of a communist party, um, even though the, the coalition partners are so far against it, so we'll have to wait and see how things develop over the next few days. Thanks, Shubanga. And uh, moving on to our next segment, Around South Asia in 5 Minutes. So, over in Maldives, the government headed by the Maldivian Democratic Party wants to introduce a bill to outlaw protests against the government's foreign policy on grounds that they endanger national security. Now, uh, this bill is clearly aimed at the India Out movement, which uh, uh, protests against the growing Indian military presence in the Maldives. Uh, Now, these protests, uh, they've been going on for about two years against the MDP government's um, perceived proximity to India. Um, now, the, the India Out movement believes that uh, India has a large military footprint on Maldivian soil. Um, and the movement also points towards the agreement between India and the Maldivian government uh, to develop and maintain a Coast Guard harbour and dockyard at uh, Uturu Tilafu, uh, a, strategic, uh, a strategically located atoll near um, the Maldivian capital of Mali. So... In Myanmar, the military regime has started prosecuting a large number of individuals who oversaw the 2020 general elections. Um, The number could be as many as 2,500 according to them. Um, This includes the election commission leadership and uh, other officials, uh, many of them appointed during the NLD government's uh, rule. Um, But it also includes uh, political leaders like the president, uh, Yuin Mint, and state councillor Aung San Suu Kyi. Um, and other state and regional chief ministers. Clearly, this is in line with uh, the government's larger and you know unsubstantiated argument um, that there were uh, electoral uh, frauds that actually led to the NLD's victory, um, which is the argument they also used for cancelling, uh, for annulling the election results. But earlier this month, a junta court fined 12 election subcommissioners from the, from the Shan state, um, again, for uh, uh, frauds during the election. And it's expected that many more will face trials in the days ahead. Interestingly, the Irrawaddy, uh, which is a Myanmar-based publication, uh, reports that the election fraud charges have so far been only brought against civilian election commissioners, even though many former uh, military officers and other bureaucrats were involved in the electoral process. So, you know, it basically seems like a way to completely undermine the Union Election Commission, um, which is the independent constitutional body body for uh, overseeing elections in Myanmar. In Kashmir, the editor of news portal Kashmirwala, Fahad Shah, was arrested by police on February 4th in Srinagar for posting anti-national content, according to them, uh, seemingly for his coverage of a police raid which left four people dead. While the military described them as militants, Shah had interviewed one of the victim's family members, noting that he was a civilian. 
His arrest is only the latest in a crackdown on press freedom in Kashmir. Just last month, Sajid Gul, also a contributor to Kashmirwala, was also arrested over his social media posts. While he was granted bail on January 15th, he remains in detention as police filed another case against him. Also in January, a group of journalists forcibly entered the Kashmir press club with the help of police and paramilitary and announced themselves as interim office bearers. The fate of the Kashmir press club remains uncertain, with elections for new office bearers originally scheduled to be held this month. Several organizations, including the Editors Guild of India, Mumbai Press Club and Free Speech Collective have condemned the move. This week, India presented its annual budget for 2022, which goes into effect on the 1st of April. The budget was heavily focused on infrastructure projects with no specific initiatives to boost employment or agriculture, which are India's most pressing economic needs after the pandemic and the devastating lockdown in 2020. In late January, several people protested in Bihar and UP states by setting fire to trains, claiming that the railway sector is biased towards candidates with college degrees, where the minimum requirement was lower. Um, and this recent unrest and new budget has implications for the five state elections taking place in the coming weeks, particularly in UP and Punjab, where farmers spent much of last year protesting the new agricultural reforms. But while the farm laws were repealed late last year, budget cuts for rural development programs and decreased food and fertilizer subsidies could create fresh grievances for farmers. And now for our culture section, Bookmarked. So, did you guys know that Verdal can actually save lives? <laughs> I did not know that. Okay. Wait, are you talking about that new story about the kidnapping? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, last week in Chicago, um, so a daughter of an eight-year-old uh, became suspicious when her mother didn't send her a Verdal update in the morning. And apparently, she was held hostage. I mean, it's, it's a crazy story if you want to check it out. And she had been uh, held hostage for like 17 hours. And the, the police was alerted by the daughter. And good news, um, the woman was rescued. So yeah, Wordle can actually save lives. (laughs) I know we've all jumped into the Wordle bandwagon because that's what we, this this is what we kind of talk about now for the last few weeks. Um, Our morning meetings, we start with uh, Wordle (laughs) updates. Um, So I guess the the first thing I would want to ask you all is, okay, why do you like it? That's, That's number one. And I have heard that there's so many variations of it. Now, I'm, I'm a bit boring. I've just stuck to the, you know, the standard version. Um, and I, I think I saw so many variations that have been, like, um, shared on, on social media. I've, I've, uh, I saw that there's, there's one that is made on Excel also. So I haven't really ventured into the, the Wordle multiverse. So I guess the second question is, what are the other Wordle variations that you guys have tried? Okay, I guess I'll start. I think I've already said this before, but the reason that I kind of like it in answer to your first question, like I kind of play it first thing in the morning and it gives me this strange feeling of accomplishment <laughs> that at least I can guess. <laughs> Even when you fail? <laughs> at least I can guess a five-letter word if nothing else goes right. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of why I liked it. 
we were also saying no spoilers for those who haven't guessed it yet but right. today's word is very appropriate given today's <laughs> valentine's day <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's cynic by the way <laughs> oh you guess okay okay you guessed it i didn't want to say it in case i spoiled it but yeah oh are there any okay did i spoil you it for anybody yeah spoil it for me but uh, <laughs> but you, oh, well, okay. you oh, i'm sorry you did and you did because i gave it a few go and i couldn't solve it so i just gave up <laughs> all right anyway <laughs> yeah so that was uh, in answer to the first question uh yeah and the second one i mean yeah i've heard of lots of different um, variations i haven't really tried them yet but i've gone and kind of looked at a few um i think most recently the one that i saw and like kind of checked out was wordle which is like a uh, singaporean english um uh, which uses very specific it's like a mixture of malay chinese and english so they just launched like their version and people have just started playing it so that one seems fun um there's also one for pokemon but that's quite complex oh, wow. because That's you have cool. to guess like the generation um and like different statistics and it looks quite complicated but if you are a pokemon uh, fan there's a, a version called squirtle and there's so many different versions so yeah and um i've come across and attempted unsuccessfully i might add uh two tamil versions of wordle Uh one is relatively easy you have to find the hidden four letter word in six attempts and there's another one with unlimited tries for a five letter word now because the tamil script is syllabic it's like around over twi- 200 compound syllables there's too many potential combinations <laughs> that's a nightmare at least that's what i'm telling myself <laughs> um yeah shubhag what about you No I will I I've been hearing about a few variations but the one I've tried most recently is a uh, wordle in hindi this one it's actually quite simplified so maybe it's still something in development although it says there's a new word every day so you have to fill in three letters and they actually make it quite easy because they uh, fill in the vowels or the vowel markers and so I actually gave it a go today and I got the word in one go because it's it's a very obvious word So do they give like a get like um some sort of clue or just oh uh, no just there's guess? no outright you just guess and there's unlimited tries um but yeah i mean the the nice thing about wordle is actually it made me think about what other variations could work i mean not just in wordle but all kinds of kind of let's say crossword related genre because depending upon the way the script works i guess you could imagine you know really wild variants in different languages and scripts but yeah i i do haven't ventured out too far i i heard of a new of a, i mean much more different variation which is more like a cartographic variant so it's called wordle and i think um you attempt uh based on the outline of a territory you say where in the map it is uh and it tells you how far off you are or you know how long so it gives you like direction. a picture or Yeah so you basically get like a vector uh, graphic oh, like an outline nice. okay uh, but yeah i guess we'll see more of these from uh, going ahead yeah and how do you guys feel about um the acquisition i think we have to talk about that oh, too yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i mean it was a bit um it was certainly concerning because they kind of hinted that it might not mm. remain free for much 
longer. Um, so far, of course, they just sneakily, somewhat sneakily, one day kind of made the shift and one day people just yeah. were greeted with the New York Times URL. A few people also lost their... Yeah, and plus I think there's some there's some change, right? Like in, I, I don't know, for, for some reason my thing changed, like the... the the keyboard changed and like the the yeah the design, the design is, is subtly is like kind of slightly slight, different slightly changed. Um, but also, yeah. if you didn't use the same URL, a few people lost their streaks. Um, that was a bit annoying as well for people who have been like playing at the stretch. Yeah, so that's a bit boring. So, so what if they like uh, put it behind a paywall? Did you would you guys pay to play God? No, no, I don't think I would pay. I mean, I think there's plenty of <laughs> yeah. other free options. If you were gonna, yeah, or you could play one with of all the, these variations, the variations, variations you know. Yeah, I want to try out that Excel one. It looked so. This guy just like made an algorithm on Excel, and it it works just like Word. So yeah. Well, the other uh, I think important kind of cultural update that um, for this for the last uh, few days is the closure of the publication Westland Books. Uh, now this was. Uh, publication house that was uh, taken over by Amazon a few years back and uh, it's kind of unexpected and sudden closure I think has raised a lot of discussion about you know whether this was a um, financial move or whether this was linked to the kind of political and kind of cultural changes we're seeing in India with kind of greater scrutiny and attack on, um, on free expression um, and kind of critical writing and I think I mean for me the most and kind of more important conversation around this is People talking about the viability of publishing models and uh, you know where 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 we go ahead because even with you know West End, if it was a financial issue, clearly uh, having a few bestsellers under your belt isn't enough. And uh, and there have been several people who've been talking about uh, you know what might be the way to go ahead. Um, some suggesting that uh, there's need to have you know a stronger collection of what's called the middle of the list. I think books. Amish Murbi, who is also a contributor and who is also in the publishing industry, uh, had an interesting thread about that. So far, I think Amazon hasn't really given a clear uh, answer to why it goes on beyond saying something about the financial situation. Yeah, there's also been a lot of discussion about um, what to do about the existing catalogue, particularly, you know, the non-fiction catalogue and a lot of people saying that, you know, you need to kind of save the books and you should, everyone's kind of going and like buying the books. But some people have also pointed out that, you know, firstly, like uh, Westland has been owned by different, you know, profit motivated entities for like years now. So maybe, you know, if it's to save them and to prevent them from potentially being pulped, if that is the concern that maybe the better thing to do is to try to donate it to libraries so that they'll, you know, they'll yeah. continue life. I think after people made that kind of recommendation, then lots of people kind of started galvanizing to do that, which is uh, good to see. And also a lot of discussion about, you know, finding alternatives in a situation like this when a publication, a publishing house suddenly has to close down and a lot of, like, really interesting books might suddenly have to go out of print, like whether there's some kind of a virtual library or something like that. Um, although that's quite controversial because of copyright and, you know, authors don't necessarily always like that idea. But something to give 
places like that a life beyond uh, you know potentially being parked or uh, just going on a print i mean like to your point shubhanga i think it's it's a very challenging industry um especially to sell non fiction i think uh, you know that's another discussion for another time maybe but uh, i mean for example in sri lanka um it's you know the, there are so many publishing houses and especially after the the pandemic hit uh, who are struggling um to sell anything basically and most have like basic basically closed down yeah yeah i also read uh, a new story recently in the sri lankan press about uh, prices of paper rims going up significantly oh yeah yeah and that that is impacting the painting industry the independent yes. publishers a lot more but you know but maybe even the big players now yeah yeah for sure i mean it probably also impacts even uh, newspapers as well because yeah. lots of publishers have to get newsprint like import newsprint yeah. so on that uh, depressing note maybe we should move on to our recommendations i guess i'll start um my recommendation for this month is a website set up by the international tibet network which is a coalition of more than 120 tibetan organizations it's called i will not watch and it's been set up to offer an alternative to watching the 2022 beijing winter olympics as part of a broader campaign So this website includes links to documentaries on Chinese repression in Tibet, East Turkestan and Hong Kong and it also has music from these areas plus book re- recommendations and even an alternate opening ceremony which you can watch. And uh my recommendation for the month is a new anthology featuring voices from the Myanmar revolution called Picking off new shoots will not stop the spring. Witness poems and essays from Myanmar. Um, it was edited by Coco Tet and Brian Hammond. They began this project in February 2021, following the military coup in Myanmar, and published the collection this month, uh, marking one year since the revolution. Uh, the book itself is a collection of witness poems and essays by some of Myanmar's most important uh, contemporary writers. uh such as Martira who's who has actually written for him all in the past and other cultural figures people on the ground and in the diaspora documenting their experiences and also the traumas they've experienced over the years um and the publishers have made the ebook available for free for those who are interested in reading this collection so my recommendation is uh, it's not a recent book and it's kind of very online Uh, so over the past day or so there's been a lot of uh, kind of twitter conversation about uh, the fact that um, well known and you know uh, very well known anthropologist uh, of southeast asia james scott uh, was actually um, writing reports for the cia back in the 60s uh, but it's kind of sparked a conversation around the role of you know social scientists and uh, us intelligence and kind of military strategy So related to this there's this uh, book from 2016 by David Price called Cold War Anthropology um the CIA the Pentagon and the growth of dual use anthropology and it's a it's a really fascinating account of uh, you know how a lot of anthropologists were uh, in some cases directly and in some cases indirectly uh, working for the US state department CIA and kind of the broader um intelligence uh, community 
in the 60s and 70s so that's my recommendation and on that note that's it for this edition of south asia sphere do head to our website himamag.com to see more of himas work and while you're at it check out our membership plans and support us thanks everyone bye 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 bye